Yeah, this is John Sykes, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. tuned into episode 3.17 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented proudly by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Don't forget that sunscreen, folks. Man, did I get a good old forehead burn this weekend. Some days it seems like you just can't put enough on. Hopefully you are all making the most of the long days and deep snowpacks with fun and safe mountain adventures. Let me know what you've been up to, where you've been riding, by tagging at the Avalanche Hour podcast in your social media posts. I enjoy seeing the photos of your adventures. There's some really great surveys out there right now that are related to avalanche science, decision making, and public avalanche forecast understanding. One of them is a survey on the risk of ski cutting, and that's put out by Bruce Jameson and some others. Another comes from Simon Fraser University and has the aim of making avalanche bulletins more understandable to the greater public. And the third is about how the Airy field book is being used by students after completion of the avalanche course. Help the community help you by taking part in this research. You can find links to all these surveys in the show notes. To stick with the theme of research, today we'll highlight an interview with John Sykes. John completed his master's degree in snow science through the Department of Earth Sciences at Montana State University. In addition to being an academic researcher, he also has a background in psychology and works as a guide and avalanche educator. Pretty much the perfect combination to study human behavior and decision making in avalanche train if you ask me. This winter, John continued on his research path as he started a PhD program at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. We chat about what it was like getting into the MSU program and taking part in it, some mentorship, and then we dive into the meat and potatoes about his research. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. All right, John. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was hoping you could give us your background and kind of the the roadmap of where you're from and where you call home and what's the path that led you to what you're doing today. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in New England, so not in the big mountains, but spent a bunch of time skiing in the White Mountains and coming out to Colorado. Started skiing as a little kid um, and then kind of switched my trajectory after high school. I did a Knoll semester and got really interested in kind of the wilderness self-supported backpacking and more technical stuff like rock climbing and whitewater also. But uh, yeah, that eventually brought me up to Anchorage, Alaska for my undergrad. And yeah, I went to Alaska Pacific University in Anchorage, did their, started in their outdoor program and then kind of transitioned to 
finish up in the psychology program. I was always bouncing around between, yeah, psychology, outdoor studies, and environmental science. So I got a little bit of each, but the the fastest way I could get out of there was with a psychology degree. <laughs> so that's what I ended up doing. Um, and surprisingly, it's it's actually paid off in my later schooling. I didn't really think it was going to, but uh, so much focus on decision-making these days that having that perspective and background has actually turned out to be pretty valuable, which which was good. I didn't didn't really think that was going to be the case, but um, yeah. And so I got got into backcountry skiing from a recreational side when I moved to Alaska, and ice climbing, backcountry skiing, and then once I finished at APU, I did some snow science research there, more glaciology research on the environmental science side, and some teaching glacier courses, which led me to work as a guide for Alaska Mountaineering School based out of Talkeetna. And I've worked there now kind of off and on for, I think, eight seasons, doing some guiding on Denali and more teaching avalanche, or not avalanche classes, teaching uh, glacier mountaineering courses and some Denali trips and some kind of random wilderness trips. But it's a cool organization. It's very, it has a little bit of a Knowles mentality, but it's very technical focus. So like all, all glacier mountaineering trips. Um, and that, that led me to meet, uh, Tucker Chenoweth, who's one of the Rangers there for the South district of Denali. And he gave me my first job as avalanche instructor for Alaska avalanche school. So kind of just got lucky and met the right people. And I started working for the avalanche school that winter and I've worked there same like seven years now Mm -hmm. teaching a lot of, a lot of level ones, some level twos. I haven't haven't broken into teaching the pro courses yet. seems like, uh, hopefully someday, but, um, yeah, focusing on some other stuff right now. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So, and kind of at the same time as that, I started doing a lot of personal, um, long self-supported backcountry trips in Alaska. We were really had kind of a cluster group of friends that were really into doing, um, long human powered trips kind of ski mountaineering but not not really technical usually you know like a big mountain objective but not something that was super um climbing technical uh more just kind of skiing on the big mountains so yeah yeah that was my kind of where i cut my teeth as a backcountry skier and made some early mistakes that i hopefully have learned from and uh and then transitioned back into the kind of university world and started at MSU 2016. Uh, and I just finished up in May, graduated with my master's of science in earth science in the snow and avalanche lab at Montana state. Yeah. Oh, congrats on the master's John. That's, yeah. a, that's a big accomplishment. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and, and then let's talk just briefly about your, your next step. You're, you just, you got accepted into the Simon Fraser phd program yep yep so that's another it's a in the geography department there and the simon fraser avalanche research program is kind of an interesting combination of folks looking at um it's a lot of kind of big data and statistical analysis so a little bit different perspective than the program i was in at msu which is msu which is very uh field-based and like go out get your data it's more 
not trying to answer bigger questions, but using bigger data sets to answer those questions. And there's a lot of industry support uh, from Canadian Heli Ski and uh, guiding operations and uh, forecasting operations. So it's yeah, I'm you know still figuring it out, but I'm I'm excited for it. Start. I'll be starting that in January. So, cool. Yeah. Well, congrats on that as well. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the process of attending um, MSU and the snow science program and just some of the ins and outs of, of that and then talk about what uh talk about some of your research there for sure yeah so i started off it took a lot of persistence for me to get into that program mm. i kind of during one of my longer excuse me ski mountaineering trips we had a close call on mount logan and for some reason that kind of pushed me over the edge to decide like, okay, I think I'm ready to make a change for, um, you know, just a different career path, kind of switching from spending all my time in the mountains and kind of accepting that risk on a really frequent basis to changing to something else. And we were out there in the middle of the St. Elias and I just was like, I think I'm going to just study snow and, and ice. And from there, it took me, I think, three years to get into the program. I had to go back and take a bunch of courses, some glaciology, kind of earth science background, and a bunch of math courses. I avoided math like the plague during my undergrad. Uh, so I embraced that. And uh, and then I, I met Jordi Hendricks at the South Central Alaska Avalanche Workshop. I my One of my mentors from undergrad, Michael, so introduced me to him. And so that was kind of the the first major stepping stone, you know, other than doing this coursework to to make my academic resume look better, just kind of putting a face to the name with Yordi and then contacting him and visiting Bozeman just to check out the school and let him know that I was really serious about the program. I met with him there and he's kind of at this place coming from a, like a physical geography background. So a lot of climate change and... Um, yeah, glacier research, climate research, and transitioning into being more interested in decision-making and the human side of, of avalanche research. And I was coming from the psychology background, kind of during my undergrad, I studied decision-making quite a bit in, in high-risk environments. And so our paths just crossed at the right time. He was looking for somebody to take on some of that part of the research, and I was looking to get into what his background was. Mm. So it worked out well. Uh, the timing worked out well for me. And then, uh, yeah, so it's a two-year program. I started in, in fall of 2016. And, um, yeah, my research my research was at Bridger Bowl. We just – have you skied at Bridger Bowl? I haven't actually, no. It's on the south boundary. Well, actually, on both boundaries, there's side country mm-hmm. access. But on the south boundary, there's a kind of a cool setup where most people – just hike up the ridge line and then ski right back down to the lift. So there's no, there's not a ton of terrain options. So it makes it uh, easy as a field researcher to collect data there because what we were doing was handing out GPS units at the backcountry gate, and then we could easily collect them at the lift because essentially, you know, 99% of people are just doing that kind of yo-yo lap mm. in the in the side country there. Um, so yeah, that was my research program was get GPS tracks from these side country or uh, we like to call them lift access back country. Try and I like it. Yeah. Specify that boundary. And then we'd also uh, give them surveys at the base of the lift. So we had these two data sets, the pretty detailed uh, terrain data. So 
where'd you go? We can't really look at decision-making in real time because we don't, you know, all we can see is where people went. We can't really see like where they made each decision or the discussions they had as a group, but we can ask them, you know, in retrospect, do you think how many people on the trail influenced your decision-making or do you think, um, you know, the avalanche hazard influenced your decision-making or, you know, questions like that. It was kind of a, it was a two-sided survey that covered a bunch of demographics, like how much experience do you have? You know, what's your mode of travel, those basics, and then some more targeted stuff looking at, uh, you know, heuristics in, in backcountry skiing, like how familiar are you with the terrain? Um, you know, does the presence of other skiers or tracks on the slope influence your decision-making? Some of those classic um, decision-making biases that were really introduced by the Ian McCammon paper, mm -hmm. uh, the facets paper. So we tried to uh, target some of those in our questions and uh, it really built off a kind of three-year lineage of MSU research asking all these different populations similar questions. So we tried to stay consistent with that. Um, and yeah, we ended up doing it for two, we kind of did it for the second half of the 2017 or 16, 17 season. And then the first half of the 17, 18 season. So we covered a full season during our data collection, but it was split up. So the end of one and beginning of another, uh, which, you know, it's not ideal, but that's kind of what you're working with as a master's student, mm -hmm. um, trying to get done as quick as possible. And yeah, it was cool. It was a good experience. I found one of the most challenging things was, um, which we were talking about earlier, is, you know, having some background as an avalanche professional, you, you stand up there on the ridge and you have a sense for the conditions. You know, you're, you're just like, you can feel like, okay, I think I would ski this today. Like I would, I would hike up and I would probably ski this line today based on, you know, a lot of factors, the temperature, the forecasts, are you seeing people trigger sloughs or rollerballs or whatever it is. And so taking that kind of intuition and sense from, from standing up there every day, doing the research and trying to capture it with numbers and observable stuff and, and be consistent. Like, Oh, I think today this, this factor is really important. Like, do we see loose snow or rollerballs? That's really important for today's avalanche, but it's like, Oh, we, we forgot to collect that data for the last 10 days, you know, cause it was cold. Mm. So suddenly it's like, you don't have the continuity across your data set. And it's something that you just don't, at least I, I don't think about that if I'm just out guiding or personal backcountry skiing. It's like every day is kind of custom fit what observations you're trying to make and trying to, to turn that into some semi-robust sciences. For me, it was a big challenge and a big learning experience of, you know, you got to be put a ton of thought into it up front so that you can... Um, anticipate what you're going to look for throughout the course of your research. Yeah. It was interesting change of perspective. Do you think that change of perspective has changed how you travel in the backcountry, or maybe some like the, some of your habits or rituals? I've been saying rituals a lot lately with folks. Um, but you know, your process of doing something, I, th I think it's important in the backcountry to, to be open to changing it up, but kind of have, have a routine, right? I think it's changed the way that I prepare to go in the backcountry. Uh -huh. I'm a little more diligent about um, trip planning and having a better sense of the terrain before I go there. And it's it's especially since I've 
Yeah, I spent a bunch of time living in Anchorage, skiing in South Central Alaska, so don't really have to be that diligent because I know the terrain pretty well. If I get shut down on one thing, I can just think of three other things to go do. Yeah. But moving to Montana or about to move to BC, it's like, oh, I don't know anything. So you have to be, or at least I have to be more uh, prepared up front in order to feel like I'm doing a good job with my decision-making, my backcountry travel because I, you could just go around the corner and be like, oh, yeah, there's a huge train trap here. I didn't even know that was there. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's happened to me a couple of times in Montana. Luckily, you know, nothing bad happened, but it was it was a learning experience for sure of like, oh, this kind of objective decision-making that we preach so much, teaching avalanche classes, I'm like, I got to start. I can't just get by on my familiarity with the train. I got to start actually doing it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. That, I think that was a big change. Sure. But I, I, I tend to be a pretty conservative decision-maker. I had, I think I always have been, and then I've just had some close calls over the last six or seven years where I just feel like most days I'd rather ski the mellow powder than go and ski something borderline. Yeah. Just kind of pick and choose my days a little right. bit more carefully. So so with your research in the boundary at Bridger Bowl, this is an open boundary that's open all the time. They never close it. Is that correct? And, and talk about the process of people leaving and then talk about... How many tracks you guys have have collected and some trends that you're seeing? Yeah, so the boundary is open. There's no there's no rope line. It's just a series of bamboo with uh, there. It's well signed, but there's no physical ba- boundary. So the only time when it's closed is if they close the slushman's lift, which is that furthest south lift of Bridger Bowl, and or they can close. They can, you know, shut down the train so when you get to the top of the lift, you just can't go left for whatever reason. Um, so otherwise, if the lift is open, then I think that gate is always open. I, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. Um, and, yeah, it was interesting standing up there. It's maybe a 15-minute hike to get out to the boundary. And kind of technical train, like you wouldn't want to take a total newbie out there. You could definitely, like, fall off the north the north side and yeah get into trouble um but relatively quick access from the top of the lift and then the train you're skiing is pretty um depending on what line you pick it's pretty full on you know bridger bowl there's cliffs all over the place and steep terrain um so it's actually when you get to the boundary the out of bound stuff the backcountry train seems easier it seems mellower because the slope angle is less there's no you can't see any cliffs from the top but there's a huge cliff below it. There's like this 200 foot cliff. It's maybe five or 600 feet vertical down. And so you can't see it when you start skiing. Um, and it's kind of prime stubborn avalanche train. You know, it's like low thirties to 35 degree terrain, probably steeper right at the ridge line. And, uh, if you did get caught in an avalanche, even a relatively small one, the consequences would be huge, even though the train looks pretty mm-hmm. benign. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting kind of decision making zone because to ski the inbound stuff from that boundary seems more technical from just like a, can I ski this perspective? It's like, oh, that's going to be harder. Uh, but you know, we know that it's, it's also controlled by the patrol and they're up there every day. There's no cornices. It's, it's pretty stark boundary between like the cornices that they've been stomping off inbounds. And then as soon as you get to out of bounds, it's these huge cornices all the way around the ridge. So if you know what to look for, there's obvious signs, but a lot of people up there, they just don't, you know, we would be standing around up there and they'd 
somebody would come up and ask like, oh, is this, is this where the backcountry starts or is this the line that I should take? And it's, my goal was to never withhold any information from somebody. Like the research that I was doing was not valuable enough to sandbag somebody into skiing the backcountry. You know, if they asked what the forecast was or asked what my opinion was on where they should go, then we would always give it to them and have that discussion. But a lot of people don't, you know, they, sometimes there's like a, a little bit of a log jam up there. So there's a bunch of people milling about and people can just be tentative about their decision-making. Maybe they're, they have less experience, but they don't want to show it. So there's kind of be quiet and then suddenly just like shoot out and ski a bunch of the backcountry over the cliffs and then cut back in. So those folks were the ones that made me the most nervous because it wasn't clear that they really knew kind of the gravity of the decision that they were making. Yeah. Just following the lemming line. Exactly. Yeah. Just <laughs> like, Oh, we'll just put the next further track yeah. to where the powder is, you know, right. obviously that's where we're going to ski. And just not understanding the consequences. And there have been some serious accidents out there, right? Yeah, they're actually, the week after we finished research this spring, there was a fatality off mm-hmm. of this peak of saddle. Um, and that area where, where that accident happened is, is a little bit different zone than what I'm talking about. So right at the boundary, you can ski what we call the football field. So it's just this nice powder slope. You could make one turn or 10 turns in the backcountry and then cut back. And to get to the actual peak of Saddle Peak, you have to hike another maybe 15 minutes. So that, I think, you know you're in the backcountry because mm-hmm. you're hiking way out of bounds. Um, it's a little more defined. and But obviously still dangerous avalanche train. Yeah. And that was a solo skier. Um, yeah. And it was just a yeah, really you know unfortunate accident. Yeah. That's too bad. Yeah. Uh, I thought I saw somewhere that MSU has some cameras up that can look yep. at that area. Yep. Yeah. So that's uh, master's research of Diana Sally, who's uh-huh. now, I believe this winter, she started work as a forecaster for Avalanche Canada. And she she put a time-lapse camera up on an old gun mount that they had kind of down in the valley. And so she could look at all the skiers up there, you know, whereas we were limited to handing out GPSs to whoever was willing but she could just, it was basically like a cheap remote sensing technique for, you know, looking at a photo and clicking where all the skiers, excuse me, are. And then looking at the next photo 10 seconds later and kind of tracking everyone on the way down that way. Hmm. And it was cool. She got a lot more, she got way bigger samples than we did because she's just able to track everyone for the whole day. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting seeing that just a different method for kind of the same question um, so she was able to see more people. We were able to get the survey data. So we had a little bit more information on who these people were and put them together. And it's, it, you know, a pretty good picture of what's going on up there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what, how big was your data set and what conclusions were you able to draw? Yeah, we ended up getting 120-ish usable tracks or maybe 130 usable tracks, something like that. The details are getting fuzzy in my mind as uh-huh. we get further away from it. But um, some of the big conclusions that we found are that people with less experience, males, and people who didn't understand the avalanche mitigation policies were more likely to ski right above those big cliffs adjacent to the boundary line. And yeah, we did a bunch of, you know, statistics and GIS mapping to figure that out. But but that was kind of the basic because like people with less experience seem to be 
either they're consciously making that decision and they're accepting the risk of skiing over there, over the cliffs, or they just don't know that there's that cliff there. So that's kind of a big unknown is whether they, they knew the cliff was there, they knew the consequences and they did it anyway, or they're just kind of blindly taking that risk. But, um, but yeah, we also had, we saw something like, I think 60% of the population knew the avalanche forecast for the day, which is surprising because it's posted there at the top of the lift. Not, not like a, like I think at Solitude, they have like a huge sign at the backcountry gate. Like you can't miss it basically if you're walking out. This was like a printout of the day's forecast with the whole forecast discussion. Um, so you had to stop and read it. It wasn't like you just look up and see the color orange and you know. Right. But, um, but it was posted there. So we were surprised to see how few people actually knew the hazard. And we also, another interesting finding was that there's something like 30% of the sample didn't have beacon probe and shovel. You know, they were missing one of those key pieces of rescue gear. Um, yeah. And then we also had almost 40% of our sample was solo skiers. So I'd say those three things played into just kind of a surprising lack of preparedness for that sample where people either they were solo, so they had more or less no capacity to rescue themselves or yeah, to get rescued, companion rescue, or they didn't have all the gear that they needed. So again, they didn't have the capacity to do a companion rescue or they didn't know the forecast. So just kind of going out there, you know, breaking some of these really basic rules that we, at least that I think of from being an avalanche educator for backcountry travel, mm-hmm. you know, you just, those are things you just always the basics. Do. Yeah. Uh, would you would you all say anything to those folks if they didn't have the gear, or, or did you not know? We at didn't the top? know. Yeah. yeah. We at that lift they check. There's a beacon checker, so you mm-hmm. can't get on the lift without having a beacon. Okay. On, which is awesome. That's yeah. a big um, step in the right direction that Bridger Bull did. You know, on their own. So kudos to them. But yeah, probe and shovel. Most people have packs, so you just don't know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and the solo skiers even it's there's enough traffic when it's good conditions that you, you can't really tell because yeah. there's a lot of times there'll be like a wave of people going out the boundary at the same time. So there may be you know there's enough people out there that you might not be totally hosed on rescue if there's other people around. But like that accident this spring, that that guy was the only um, I think he was the first run out there of the day or something. Yeah, and the. I think the witness for the accident saw him from the lift and they were, they were able to get there something like an hour later. Mm. So just really, yeah. Were you able to draw any conclusions about terrain familiarity? I mean, I'm sure there's been, there's locals there that are skiing out there that have been for 20 plus years, right? For sure. Yeah. It's actually this, the population as a whole was, had more experience than we thought. You know, it's Bozeman's college town. We were like, oh, it'll probably be a bunch of early 20s out there. But most of our sample was like mid 30s. Yeah. People who had been skiing up there all the time. And yeah, there's some some definite favorite runs, some some secret runs. And then like the kind of standard, they call it the North Shoulder Run, which is it's still avalanche train, but it's not exposed to nearly as many train traps. And it's kind of on a ridge feature. So it's a little bit. Uh, more of a defensive train feature compared to some of the big open faces that people ski. So yeah, we definitely saw some positive travel behaviors of people being familiar with the train and like pretty consistently choosing this the most conservative line, but still, you know, still avalanche train for sure. Right. Yeah. 
So, John, talk a little bit about your experience at MSU living in Anchorage and, and doing your research in Bridger Bowl and, and how that all worked. Yeah. So MSU, so for the master's program, it's, it's a really research-focused master's program. And I'm speaking specifically about working with Jordi Hendricks. He runs the Snow and Avalanche Lab, which is in the Earth Sciences Department. There's another avalanche research program in the engineering department, which has uh, been run for by Ed Adams for a really long time. Um, and they do they do field-based work, but they also do a lot of uh, lab-based work. They have a really cool cold lab there, so they can grow surface ore or whatever, you know, you name it. They can just grow it and test it in a very kind of experimental controlled setting. So their research is kind of in a different, kind of a different realm than ours. They're looking at these material structure, or material strengths and properties, and we're looking more at, uh, you know, a wide variety of things, but kind of the theme is all field-based. So Diana and I both did this kind of decision-making, um, lift access backcountry tracking research. Another student that was there did um, snowpack model, like trying out a snowpack model for Bridger Bowl, so much more of like a meteorology-focused research. There's been folks that do snow pit test research, so trying out new field tests or you know, validating existing field tests, that kind of stuff. So there's a wide variety of different types of research that go on in the earth science department. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it's it's great. Working with Jordi was awesome. He's, he's a really, really good advisor and, uh, you know, very open to whatever. If you have an idea, he's psyched and he wants to talk to you about it and he'll really help you learn how to take that idea and hone it into an actual, a good research question, which is really surprisingly hard to do. <laughs> um, yeah. Every time I would have a committee meeting, Carl Berklin was on my committee and every time I'd have a meeting, he would ask me, he's like, Oh, so what's the research question that we're asking out of this? And every time I'd be like, ah, I knew you were going to ask me that. So eventually I figured it out and I would start, you know, coming up with it beforehand, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, surprisingly hard to like take all these, kind of ideas they have flowing and be like, this is the question that we're asking, but yeah. it's important, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of keeping things simple and really being able to, um, some, do some effective research. Yeah. Um, anyway. So, and yeah. so you were traveling back and forth? No. Well, in the summertime, yeah, I was going up to Alaska and guiding. So I would work a couple trips for AMS doing some mountaineering guiding. And then I was working some other like more backpacking wilderness type guiding up there. Um, and I would do, I did some research during the summer. I would try and between trips, I would just work from home and kind of do work on my statistics or work on my sample that I had collected. It's a lot of, you know, taking this big pile of GPS tracks and surveys and turning it into a spreadsheet essentially. Uh, and that takes a lot of work. So it's not very glorious, but uh, it needs to be done. And then, yeah, during the spring and fall semesters, I would be in Bozeman, living in Bozeman, doing okay. my research there. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Um, was your project tied into the White Heat Project? And if so, how? And, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about the White Heat Project. You probably For sure. know more about it than me. Yeah. So the White Heat Project is a really cool uh, partnership between Jordi Hendricks and Jerry Johnson at MSU and um, Andrea... Ma Manberg, Manberg in Norway, University of Tromso. 
Um, and they, she's a behavioral economist. And Jordy and Jerry's a political scientist. He helps us out with a lot of our survey kind of decision-making research at MSU. And Andrea brings this very kind of quantitative perspective to that. So survey research and hypothetical decision-making using online surveys. So if you went in and did it, you, they might show you a picture or two pictures and give you some avalanche conditions and you'd make a decision based on what run you would ski, like what run you would accept to ski if somebody in your group was really pushing for it. Um, that's one of the big themes that they're after is like what you would choose versus what you would accept. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're focusing a lot on this social pressure. Like is does the social media culture uh, affect people's decision-making in the backcountry because they want to ski cool stuff, you know, post a picture of them skiing some sweet steep shoot online Mm -hmm. um so it's really interesting and it's it's kind of in the same vein as the research i did but a little bit different in the sense that it's all hypothetical decision making versus what we were doing what kind of makes it unique is that we went into the field and collected these tracks um directly in the field so anyone that was traveling out of the boundary that day had an opportunity to participate they didn't have to yeah, go to a saw and learn about the research and then go and download the app or um, go and take the survey online. You could participate with pretty minimal effort. Mm-hmm. And theirs is kind of most people are submitting tracks online and then taking the survey as a follow-up, I believe. Um, so it's just a little bit of different sampling strategy, um, but bigger, much bigger sample size. It, right. it allows you to access people I think they're doing, I think right now they're focusing on U.S. Andrea was in Bozeman last year and they were doing a bunch of U.S. sampling. But I think their plan is to look at different regions around the world. And I'm sure Norway versus the U.S. and Europe. But um, but yeah, their their research is kind of the next step. Right. Yeah. It's I'll, I'll put a link to, in the show notes to to that that program and, and, and anybody can take part, right? Yep. Yeah, I think if you want to submit a track, you can record yourself on your cell phone it's pretty easy mm-hmm. and then uh i think through you could use they use ski tracks app is the app that you already used in the past but i think you can get the same information with gaia or whatever mm-hmm. maybe mountain hub you can get a gps track of your tour and submit it yeah yeah cool yeah um You've talked a little bit about mentorship within the program. Can you talk about some of the importance of mentorship that accompanies working with some of our field's top researchers? Yeah, so I was, to be honest, I was I was pretty petrified starting out the program. You know, just meeting Yordi for the first time, I was super nervous. And um, meeting Carl for the first time and have, going to his office and asking him to be on my committee, I was like, yeah. I didn't sleep the night before for sure. But, you know, these guys are all super down to earth. They're really interested in research and helping you out and helping young researchers learn about the snow and kind of get that passion for not only the practical side, but also the the more kind of intellectual side of contributing to research, even if you're not going to be writing and publishing papers. So I kind of started off with this, you know, fear. <laughs> And then I felt really embraced by the community at MSU. It was, uh, I feel really lucky to have worked with those guys and would love to work with them in the future. Um, but yeah, in general, I found them to be super, um, super open. And if you were willing to put the work in and kind of 
be motivated and be interested, then they were, they were psyched to help you out. And, and whenever I'm around them, I just try and be, you know, like a sponge, ask as many questions as I can and try and learn going in the field with Yordi and Carl is just, you know, you could ask, you can ask them any question, you know, teaching avalanche classes all for the last several years. It's like, I can never explain, you know, propagation of the PST and you ask Carl and he just nails it. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, I wish I would have recorded that. So yeah. I could then <laughs> explain it to my students better. Um, so yeah, it's, um, I think it's a really strong, Bozeman has a really strong community in terms of, uh, both researchers and the forecasting, you know, Doug and Eric and uh, Alex are all kind of folded in with the whole research forecasting community. It's it's a cool place to go and do snow research. Nice. Yeah. So in January, you're moving up to BC or down to BC, I guess, from Anchorage. Yeah. And, long drive. Uh, <laughs> what's that going to be like? And, and I, I, it looks like Pascal Hagley is the kind of chair of the, the program there. Yep. Yeah, he's the he's will be my primary advisor, and I don't know exactly what it's going to be like. I hope it'll be still a good combination of being able to use some of my perspective as guide and avalanche educator. To I, I feel like that really helps me ask questions that are pertinent, at least that I think are pertinent, and then the research side of it, like being able to dig in and do the stats and, you know, make the maps and do the GIS and all that is more the academic side of it. And I think pairing those together can be a pretty, I hope will be a a good thing to bring to the program. Um, Yeah. So, and they're very strong in the quantitative side of it, like Mm. the statistics and the GIS and, and having access to these huge, incredible data sets, like, InfoX data and data from Heliski guide companies from, you know, they have GPS tracks, I think for two or three years from lead guides from a bunch of different Heliski operations. So going from having like 120 tracks to work with to thousands will be, you know, it's somewhat daunting to think about how like the technical aspects of the research will be harder, more like computer kind of coding. Cause you can't, if you have that much, you can't like go through one at a time and like look at them in Google earth, which is kind of my, you know, Neanderthal way of doing it. Like, Oh, I can just look at this and see what's happening. So you have to be a little more sophisticated in that way. But, um, I think it'll be a cool opportunity to learn more of that side of it and hopefully be able to go out and, and learn from the guiding operations about their, you know, everything they do from their, their forecasting program and their morning meetings, their field decision-making and combining some of those, those skill sets. But yeah, this hopefully find out more in January. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like your research will be along the same lines of decision making and yeah. looking at, yeah, at people's exactly. tracks. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's all those heli tracks and then trying to come up with like I think the end goal is to come up with a decision making tool. Mm. So Pascal was a big part of developing that evaluator, mm-hmm. which is a, a pretty sweet decision making tool. Um, and so I think the idea with all this data is to to have an even more kind of um, data supported decision-making tool for the future. So both for uh, operation, for professional users, not necessarily to be like, Hey, this is how you should do it. We're trying to learn from how they are doing it. You know, mm-hmm. we're taking these, these tracks from Heliski guides and saying like, this probably is how we should be traveling, right? These guys have been doing it forever. They know the train. So how can we learn from those tracks instead of, you know, 
making recommendations on how they should be doing. I think I don't know how well received that would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think? Your what's your take on on the role that intuition plays in that? You know, experience and intuition and yeah. operating in the same tenure for you know some of these lead guides have been working there for twenty years. Oh, I think it's huge. I mean, and I think that's. I, there was a paper that Pascal published in the last in the 2016 ISSW. He gave a really good presentation on it, and it was it was focusing on that. You know, in the guide intuition and that body of knowledge is so vast that we need these kind of advanced statistical methods just to start picking it apart and learning about it. Yeah. So the combination of the GPS tracks and the whole morning meeting and you know weather data is is our way of trying to start picking at it and kind of pulling out some of the major themes of, you know, what did, what did your intuition tell you is the most important thing for that day? And how can we figure out how to extract that and then potentially apply it to future conditions? Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that psychology degree comes out and yeah. is pretty useful. In yeah. This. No, surprisingly useful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So John, you mentioned a couple close calls, you know, early on in your, in your backcountry skiing career, specifically one on Mount Logan, would you would you care to share a close call that you had? Sure. Or? Yeah. So that one in particular was a pretty defining one for my development, and uh, it was kind of a crazy trip. We skied from Yakutat to uh, McCarthy, which is pretty far. It's like something like three hundred plus miles, and we were trying to do it unsupported. So. It was very like logistically intensive and gear intensive. We started off pack rafting in the fjords outside of Yakutat, and then we got hammered by weather. Of course, you know that I think Yakutat gets the most rain in the whole of the North America, so gnarly place to start a trip. And we got hammered there, and we got soaked, and almost turned around. Finally, had a good day of weather, and so we were like, "Oh, we still got it." Went up on the glaciers and then got hammered by snow for like five days, totally buried in our tents. And so we started off the trip not running smooth. Um, and we had kind of, you know, lofty goal. We were trying to go up the East Ridge of Mount Logan, which is a kind of a moderately technical alpine route. And and then ski down the King's Trench. So like a big traverse over Mount Logan, which has a really, um, a really big high elevation plateau so it's kind of like steep up to this plateau and then it's i think there's something like nine different like sub peaks on this plateau it's all i think it's all over sixteen thousand feet so uh very lofty goal and it took us longer than we wanted to get to the base of the slope and we had just had that big snowstorm we were stuck in the tents and finally it broke and we were able to cruise across the glacier so after something like 10 days of just getting to the base of the mountain with crazy heavy packs. And of course we got there and none of us even thought about whether the avalanche conditions were good to go to climb this mountain. We were just like, we're behind schedule. We got to get all this crap up onto the ridge and then start double carrying it up. You know, it's just the goal was way above our kind of pay grade, or at least we needed to just kind of swallow our pride and get some food drops or something, you know, something just to not be like physically crushing yourself on the way in and then having to make these difficult decisions. Like we it didn't even enter our brain space. So needless to say, we got to the top of the first slope and triggered an avalanche. 
I think it was, I think it was kind of a sun, a wet triggered avalanche, but there was definitely some wind loading on the ridge that then tapered down. The slab kind of propagated along the ridge pretty wide and then tapered down off the ridge. And two of our party were caught. Um, my buddy Luke and Joshua, and luckily they were both, they both survived. Luke was fully buried. He had his hand sticking out and, you know, he, it was, wasn't the kind of train you want to trigger an avalanche in, not like you ever do, but yeah, they both went over Bergtrund and luckily didn't get put into it. The debris came to rest in like a crevasse field and luckily he didn't get put into a crevasse. It was just pure luck that nothing worse happened. And then he stuck a hand up at the last second. So we didn't even have to do a beacon search. We could just see him. And, uh, we were all really shaken up by it. You know, it was like just going from this very, um, goal oriented, like super focused mindset of just chipping away at the amount of work that we had to do to like, how could we be so stupid to not realize that we need to be managing these risks and like thinking about, you know, this mountain is not a gimme just cause we got there. doesn't mean we're going to be able to do the route. You know, it's like people spend years trying to climb that route and getting shut down. So yeah, so that, that close call was, was big one. And right after that, we decided to obviously bail on that route and, and we skied around Mount Logan. We, we ended up finishing the trip via a different route, but, uh, gave me a lot of time to kind of, you know, on my own, just skiing across the glaciers of St. Elias, thinking about that accident and how lucky we were. And, you know, I think in that situation, you know, you probably, you don't get many, many, uh, chances to learn that lesson i don't think it would have been so easy for something to go way more wrong so mm. tried to take that to heart or way more right right <clears throat> it could have been a not not that it was a gimme but like you could you guys could have been successful and and then you wouldn't have had that experience that's which, that's very true yeah if the avalanche hadn't happened it's like oh man we nailed it we can do anything <laughs> when in reality it's like wow we're kind of just getting blindly lucky here yeah yeah that's a really well, it good seems point. like it seems like you took took that lesson to heart and and made some changes and and some life changes from that from what it sounds yeah know? yeah so subsequent trips that we did do we for a few years after that i kept doing these long traverse trips and we would uh just kind of yeah swallow our pride and be like we need food drops at mm -hmm. this location and this location so you can't start a trip carrying 120 pounds and expect to be making good decisions you know just like walk up a 10 foot hill you're killing yourself yeah so. that doesn't sound fun at all yeah well it's fun in retrospect <laughs> right, right? Yeah. yeah now it seems very fun. much type two fun yeah type two bordering type three <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so we I, I think we learned from it and uh and i've kind of phased out a little bit from those trips partially because of school you know just different priorities but um but yeah it was a good experience in retrospect right on thanks yeah. for sharing that john yeah That certainly makes me want to put my smarty pants back on and get serious about going to school. 
but I'll probably just go skiing. One of the things that makes our community so strong is the variety of research and application by academia and practitioners, many of whom wear both hats. My plan is to do a fall interview road trip up through Bozeman later this year, maybe October, November-ish, and I'll definitely be swinging through the MSU campus. So I hope to interview Yordi, Ed, and Jerry, amongst others up there. If you're going to be in the area and have a story to share or want to talk about the research that you're doing, please reach out. I'd love to interview and highlight you on the podcast. Again, many thanks to the sponsors of this show. They are TAS Gazex, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. These generous entities make this show happen, so thank you. And a big thanks to you, the listeners of the show, for listening and reaching out to me to send kind words of appreciation. Please rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to it on. Spread the word to your friends about the show. Reach out to me to suggest new topics for next season. And check out the website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. Music in the intro was performed by Grammatic with the track Smooth While Raw. Right now you are listening to Good Times Roll by Grizz featuring Big Gigantic F-Word. And these tracks are made possible through the permission of the artists. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Don't forget your sunscreen. Cheers. Yeah.